Well, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, you want to introduce yourself again, Kevin? Sure. Hi, my name is Kevin. Uh, I write poetry sometimes. And you're also doing Grieveland now. Yeah, we're doing Grieveland, um, a sort of poetry project by me, I think a regular guest of yours, Brendan Joyce, that we started, I think, four-ish months ago. We're trying to give, at this point, all unemployed writers a chance to make some money and publish some books. Yeah, and like, so you, like, you're doing print editions, but you're also doing online editions towards that end. Yeah, so uh, originally when we started the project, we were pretty set in only doing digital. But me and Brendan have found this way where it makes financial sense to us to do both print and digital. So all of our books will be both. That's cool. And um, besides you and Brendan, Brendan Joyce, uh, what other, is there anyone else you have lined up that you can, uh, that you can talk about? Uh, sure. So um, after mine and Brendan's two books dropped, uh, we have Jamie Hood and Matt Mitchell for this year, and a couple other people next year we can't quite talk about yet. That's cool. And like, so I guess um, you mentioned the unemployment angle. Like, uh, so like, I guess how does that fit in exactly compared to maybe more traditional publishing? Uh, I guess in a few ways. Um, the whole reason why this project was started was primarily just to get money into poets' pockets. So with your normal royalty deal, which you might get five or ten percent of your book sales. We at Grieveland pay 80% to all of our poets, and we sell our books at $20. So for a book we sell, they get 16 and we get 4 and that $4 all goes into printing more books. So I would say it's sort of a, a big money difference and a big control difference. Yeah, that's cool. And, um, like, and you're also emphasizing, I guess you said, like, people who maybe are unemployed. <laughs> What's the simplest way? But, uh, yeah. That unemployed or locked out of traditional publishing in some way, whether that's due to their status or not having an MFA or just being unemployed. We are next year focusing on only people of color writers. So we're trying to just give more space and help people make money where they traditionally couldn't, especially because I think I am curious about what the poetry landscape is going to be post-COVID, whenever that is, in terms of contests and book publishing. So we wanted to sort of be set up as an alternative to that and try to take the stigma from the term self-publishing away. For sure. And like, I think two things about that. One is like, it seems to me that there is some money in poetry. People always say that there's none, but there is some. <laughs> People do buy books. And I guess the other thing, too, is you're right. Like, it's hard to know what the poetry, what any, what anything's going to look like, like, even two months from now. And, you know, like, that's the, to be, like, that's also kind of why I brought this podcast back right now is, you know, we're, it's a moment of uncertainty, I think. Yeah. And firstly, I'm glad you brought it back. Thank you for bringing some great interviews into my life. But um, I think the world of poetry was really tight before if you weren't one of, like, the bigger names. And those people have lost all of their money from speaking engagements. So you're going back into this pool with more competition and all of these presses and contests have less money or having their budgets cut. So it's harder than it's ever been. And there's so many great writers out there who I think will come to learn can make more money advertising for money on their own than they ever would with a deal. And I mean, I think another part of that too is you're like, I think a lot of the writers you're talking about, you mentioned already as being like, going to have a books out soon from Grieveland, Grieveland is, uh, they're like um, local to Cleveland, and I think there's also like a heavy local component there that I think is really useful, like both in terms of its relation to, you know, labor in Cleveland and also just, you know, the left scenes there. Yeah, I, uh, many people don't know this, but Cleveland is very much a restaurant city, and Clevelanders love their fucking restaurants. And I keep thinking about in three weeks when all these people lose unemployment, and much of them restaurant workers. And I know, I want to say more than half of my friends in Cleveland who are poets work in restaurants or the service industry. So in that way, it's good just to not have to do that anymore. I guess it's the simplest way to do it, uh, simplest way to say it. And I have worked very hard with me and all of my friends to build this sort of community in Cleveland where I think we talked about last time I was here, that is, I want to say, an alternative in a way 
to how poetry and literature present itself, which tends to be very white and old and academic. And those people are shut out in general, not even taken in like the COVID pandemic. And now that being who knows what it's going to be, like you said, even two months from now. So we're just trying to get money into people's pockets before then. Um, I think in an ideal world, if we would do something like a band camp for like poetry where everyone could just put their books on there and we could all make money. But we frankly don't have the capacity to do that yet. So this is sort of like the first step. Yeah, that's something we've talked about on this podcast before. And I think RM Haynes wrote a thing about it on their blog recently. Um, yeah, we go, that is band camp for books. And, you know, it also, like, what you're talking about, too, reminded me of, like, it's been going around recently, but that, I don't I don't remember the exact quote, but the Ruth Wilson Gilmore quote, something about, like, the, you know, pieces of the future are, are like, exist, actually existing in the present to some extent. And I don't know, it seems like this is one of those moments where we're trying to sort that out. Right, and I think, at least speaking for me and so many other people I know, like, what else do we, what do we have to lose? If there's any time to try and build toward the future now. Exactly. Well, speaking of the future, <laughs> did you like that segue? Sorry. No, it was it was it yeah. was very cool. Well, your your book deals a lot with the future. It does. I am um, very much a space boy. But to complete the segue, I have a book coming out called Zoetrope. It's a uh, full length book of poetry that will be releasing in a few weeks on August eighth, two thousand and twenty. Yeah, so, like, one of the, as we discussed previously, like, you know, a lot of your poems revolve around, so I guess, like, futurisms, but, you know, I guess one of the other things that struck me in this, in this book is how, like, you had some, you have a couple, like, very long poems in here. Yeah, so there's a, there's sort of a funny story about that. When I was an undergrad, the biggest piece of criticism I always got was, like, Kevin, your poems are too short. Um, most of my favorite poets that I read in terms of enjoyment are poets who write in very short lines and very short poems. So in this book, I really wanted to focus on extending the narrative. So there are a lot of poems in there that are four or five pages, and in the way of they take up very little space on the page. And I wanted to experiment with how does this work in terms of this alternate way of telling chronologies and this sort of zoetrope political function where you can read things in different orders and how that shapes the world. Yeah, like one way to look at some of the longer poems, I think, is as, as like sequences of shorter poems, but not like, obviously, that they're singular short poems. Yeah, I think I in introduce a lot of characters and a lot of scene building in sort of a way that comes in and leaves just as soon as that becomes back later. So I try to like look at each little short segment as its own scene, like in a movie or a play. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about this last time, but you know, like the influence of sci-fi and sci-fi movies in particular, I think, on this are are really apparent in the longer poems with that sort of scene formulation you're talking about. Yeah, um, I think going to bring that up because it's funny. I spent most of quarantine just watching like really, really bad B sci-fi movies, and one thing I find interesting, at least that theater does is movie do, movies do realism much better than plays ever could do, and plays tend to do the spectacle better. And one of my biggest strengths in poetry and what I wanted to bring out is this idea of spectacle and sort of how to bridge the two. Um, I think the poem Swallow Me Sky in that book is probably the best idea of that, where there's this image that's sustained through five or six pages of the world collapsing and this sort of tiny little boat being the only tactile thing in the entire poem that it's still grounded in the reality but also has all these space and action and sci-fi elements going on as well yeah i was just i just had um the the book open to that page and to the beginning of that poem but another but like also i want to say to the or near the end of the world is another is another theme i think for this book too in a in a kind of sci-fi-ish way yeah definitely um I think that poem probably is the most experimental formally. And I was really interested in the idea of how punctuation can work as sort of props or actors in a play and how they move the segments and keep them going. Um, 
I don't know, I've always been interested in the idea of mundane things happening in an indescribable world. Yeah, that's the, and that's like a feature too of like certain subgenres of sci-fi kind of, as some people put it, like the lived-in futures and like having slice-of-life style sci-fis, which I think, which I think is something you're uh, definitely aware of and tapping into. Yeah, I think what's really interesting in like any sort of sci-fi movie or even in this book is much less the big things going around the world, like the comets and the world ending, but more what's happening with each character's sort of emotional state and how that is changing the form and the spacing of the poem and sort of being the engine that drives the movement. Yeah, I think two of the main characters in most of the longer poems are um, uh, uh, like the black boy and the mother are probably the two two biggest ones that I can remember. And I guess like you like it, it's it comes across differently because you as you were talking about like you you're doing so much with punctuation and like the slashes and um, like even smashing words together or whatever. I think it conveys you know or maybe it puts the the characters in different contexts or in different lights every time you do it, like even just within line to line. Yeah, uh, I think that sort of goes back to what I said before about every sort of thing being its own little contained world. And one of the biggest problems I had when I created this book was like I introduced so many characters, like you said, the black boy and the mom, but there's also the priest and the congregation and the deer and the queen and the skaters and all these other people who sort of dip in and out of this book. And I struggled in a way of how to tell 18 different stories but that are really one story, but are sort of being told out of order and sort of like parallel. And I was really curious, and I still, I think, am interested in playing around with more, is just how punctuation and using wrong punctuation and different uses of punctuation can sort of bring out a poem if that makes sense with the parallel thing with the parallel sort of poem like parallel thing you're talking about like the poem originally a space opera like with some of the other longer poems you don't put the title at the top of the page like it's just like you know like like you're used to in a poetry book there's the title and then the poem just goes on to the next page onto the next page but with originally a space opera there are you you title each page with with the title like suggesting that it's the same poem again in a way and also i just wanted to highlight that one too because that's one of the ones too where you're seeing where i think i saw like a lot of the the most i guess experimentation with the um, punctuation whether it's all the slashes or words crossed out it's uh, struck through i think it's the, the phrase and uh yeah like i guess it's interesting to me that you you mentioned the parallel things i hadn't thought about that but it is a it's occurring to me now that like with the parallel poem uh originally a space opera that's the one with the i think possibly the most punctual like experimentation that you're talking about yeah so i think originally when i started this book the original concept was the entire book to be based around the space opera poem and sort of lean into this cyclical idea of police fatality and black death happening and i wanted to do it in a way that really sort of focused on the melodramatic elements of it so I think, especially in originally a space opera, and there, I think it's the fourth or fifth one, the one where the Miguel liaison comes on the stage and the sort of protests are happening. But I want to sort of do this scattered view of how protests come into view and just sort of flicker out, but then happen again and happen again. So there's a lot of repetition in the poems, and that way to sort of cement this idea into your mind. Yeah, and that was one of the longer ones that ran on for a couple pages. And like um, the way you have like no justice, no peace oriented on the page, and like as if it were a sign itself. And like you're you're describing as you're saying, you're talking about a protest, and you have no justice, no peace sort of oriented in the poem as if it was a sign, like as a as a way, like as you're saying, of demonstrating on the page, like the way this the protests I guess are portrayed. Yeah, um, a lot of that is just my experience organizing in Cleveland around the deaths of Tamir Rice and the Michael Brillo case and every other thing that's happened in the city over the last 40 years. And one thing that I found the most interesting is just when a movement starts, the fire is hottest and it flickers up. And I sort of wanted to represent 
the more tactile way that happens, from my point of view, as a black man being at these protests. Yeah, and I think one of the ways you do that is through, um, like, Tamir Rice is someone else who, who, who is a constant, who, who appears constantly in these poems. It's always just really hard for me not to make that comparison because I was three or four years older than Tamir when he passed away. And I grew up literally a block away from where he passed away. And I think, especially in Cleveland organizing or Cleveland activism, that was sort of like the big event. And his ghost sort of always haunts me. And I can't really talk about police brutality or my own health anxiety without Tamir being parallel to all of that. And I wanted to do it in a way where he's not really introduced as a character, but yet is still there. Yeah, and, and like what you're talking about kind of reminds me, I, was, I think this was, um, Fred Moten's done a lot of stuff lately, but one of the things, I think it was the Millennials Are Killing Capitalism podcast, where Fred said something to the effect of, um, yeah, there hasn't been a, a black person in America who wasn't killed by white supremacy. And I think in your poems, you know, one of the ways, I guess you're also imagining, you know, uh, like, uh, like the black boy Tamir in space. And I think that you're trying to also imagine something different. I've always had this problem with the idea of utopia. I think many people, particularly liberals, tend to do this idea of a better world is where police brutality occurs less, but, doesn't, but does not necessarily doesn't occur at all. And this idea originally was space is this place where anything is possible, and it is a place where black men and black women are not prosecuted for the color of their skin. But that's not the truth. And I very much struggled with sort of how to tell stories that aren't mine, but are also mine. Because like, I look constantly, and I see every other day just video of this black person being killed or that black person being killed and it feels like to me that i'm also being killed and i always wanted to talk about that but also give respect to those who have died yeah and what you were saying at the beginning there reminded me of um the what was it the eight reforms the eight can't wait where it's like oh we're gonna reduce we're gonna reduce brutality or deaths by 72 percent it's like yeah, but um, also with what you're talking about, it also kind of reminds me too, like with respect to liberals in utopia, like, you know, you t uh, and this is a point Silvio Winter makes, you know, that for most of, for all of the, well, for all of the existence of utopias, they've been a space for liberals to imagine what they would do if they seize power. You know, it's a, it's a fantasy for the aspiring bourgeoisie effectively. And I like, like I think you're saying you're you're going in a different direction with that. Yeah, because it's kind of <laughs> hard for me not to. I don't think like what you're saying with the liberals and the reform. I don't think it's necessarily a malicious thing. I think it is the thing where this is the amount that makes me comfortable and not have to think about this anymore. And how do you deal with the people that in many cases are fighting for you? but they're also not fighting for you. And it's really hard for me to sort of think about the space in between the 72% death reduction and the other 28%. So I kind of wanted to write into that space of this is what happens in between that. Yeah, and that literally took you to space. Yeah. And Will Smith was waiting for me with wide open eyes. Well, this might be a a time to kind of transition to something maybe a little lighter, maybe not depending on your answer to this question, but like what, since you brought like Will Smith, like what, what B movies have you been watching? Ooh, once again, I have a list. Give me one second. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Thank you. So a few days ago, I watched the sixth day horrible. So I, I put the, like the name of the movie and what I rate it, which is great, horrible, but would still watch again are just horrible. And the sixth day is horrible. Um, Red Planet, uh, I had such high hopes for Red Planet in the way where I just like, 
really wanted more out of it. I was more disappointed than I would have been if I sort of didn't have these expectations. Uh, we watched the original Planet of the Apes, which I guess I didn't call like a B movie, but I guess to me it's sort of interesting in the way where it breaches societal topics more indirect than most sci-fi movies does. Uh, I watched AI and Evolution. Yeah, that's... I, I haven't really been... What is, like... You know, a lot of those are, I think, like, late 90s, early 2000s sci-fi you're yeah. talking about? Most like, of these are, like, 2000 to 2005-ish. Yeah, so what's what's what do you think is going Like, what's going on for you in early 2000s sci-fi? How old was I originally? I was 10. Yeah, so I, I think it's, like, just a big ramping up of technology following Y2K and this idea of how far can we sort of push it which I think gives way to these awful, terrible, and uninspired movies, which bother me, I think, in the way they always tend to end with this sort of, like, individualism being the way forward. Yeah, and that seems to me like a good, sum- if I'm remembering it right, that seems like a good summation of Red Planet. That's 100 yeah, that's oh, yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, that also kind of reminds me of, like... Um, Maybe maybe this maybe this would be more of an evolution of what you're talking about, like but the movie Wall-E, where it's th- literally the technology, the, the the little robot saves us in like an individualistic manner. This one but heroic I never, robot. I have never watched Wall-E because I have heard all the criticism. So can you tell me, is it as bad as people say it is? I mean, well, first off, it's a Pixar movie, so I feel like there <laughs> yeah. isn't. Well, yeah, I mean, all the criticisms are correct. I'll put it that way. But it's not like, first off, Wally's not a B movie because it's a Pixar movie, which means that, you know, it's like incredibly well made. They, you know, they probably spent hundreds of millions of dollars on it. But yeah, all the criticisms are valid. So like in the sense, like it's it's the same with like, you know, Avatar's back because they put it on because Dis- uh, because Nickelodeon put it on Netflix. It's like, I would say Avatar's a well-made TV show, but I wouldn't call it good. Like they... They they put in all everything uh, into the uh, algorithm. You tried you tried to get us canceled by talking about Avatar. <laughs> I'm not. I won't do it. All right, you you can be the dissenting voice. Well, all I have to say well, to anyone, I am the agreeing voice. Oh, okay. Well, all I have to say to anyone who's hating on me is to watch um, the sequel show Legends of Korra, where it turns out Aang saved the world to establish neoliberalism. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, that, all I have is, that's all I have to say about that. I will say I agree with you, and like leave it at that yeah but that all that's just to say that you know like wally's a good is a well-made movie that is bad like you, you watch it and it's like oh yeah this it looks good it seems good but then you think about it and it's like oh never mind yeah and i think we need to stop correlating the two have you ever heard of, this is not a sci-fi movie but have you ever watched the movie Gotti? no i haven't watched that one so a good friend of mine billy Wedden, who runs the cleveland review of books in cleveland um took me to see this movie two years ago, and the basic premise is John Gotti is a high-rolling mobster who eventually gets taken down by the FBI or CIA or whatever, or gets betrayed by his own family. And it's a very, very terrible movie in the way that, like, just cinematically and through, like, all the fundamentals, it's a bad movie. Shot badly, acting is badly, John Travolta is bad in it. It's just a terrible movie. But I really enjoy the movie in the way where it's, like, it's authentic, and the dialogue is real. And they weren't trying to make it into a good movie. But that got it panned. So I feel like there's just like, if this is a well-done movie, it has to be a good movie. Yeah, exactly. And that's like the thing with um, prestige TV shows now, where if you just like make the TV show right, everyone was like, oh, it's a good TV show. Yeah, it's just beautifully shot. This movie has to be good. And that sort of translates into morally, too, where we're like, this movie is well done. I like this. Ergo, it has to be good. Yeah, and I think, for me, what, like this is a classic sci-fi B-movie, um, Starship, from also from a similar, from the adjacent to the time period we're talking about, um, Starship Troopers. The reason like it's a bad movie, or it seems like a bad movie, is because it's a movie that is literally being shot by a fascist state. So there's 
so you know it, it has that sort of it's going for i guess that sort of um you know pointing out the artistic flaws of that of that kind of society in an interesting way i think i haven't thought about starship troopers in such a very long time so thank you for that but yeah <laughs> i think <laughs> we just stop confusing direction with morality and i think it's even beyond just like I don't like using the word the Marvel problem, but I think when I say the Marvel problem, people know what I mean. Of like, just these, if they're not terrible movies, they're just okay movies, but they're sort of brought up to this pedestal where it's impossible to critique. And not just in the way where like the fanboys, but just in the way where it's, it's very hard to see nothing wrong with it. Yeah. And it also, because of that culturally, it feels like, even just to, and I mean, this is, I think, something that's widespread, pretty widespread right now, is you can't even just, like, do a straight critique of them because you have to also acknowledge all the wider discourses that are happening around them because they're manufactured into these massive, like, sort of social events. Yeah, and it's like, how boring is that? It's just, I mean, and it also just, like, it's so daunting to even think about them, because it's like, oh, God, I, not only do I have to see these movies, but I haven't seen. I haven't seen a Marvel movie since probably 2010. I have to, so I'd have to go, I'd have, personally, I'd have to go back and watch them all, but then I'd also have to catch up on a whole decade of discourse, and it's like, oh, my God, what's going on? <laughs> You're just 10 years behind. I didn't realize, because I, like, I've watched the Avengers movies, but I haven't watched, I have no interest in superhero movies. Just yeah, how same. much of them they are, and how much time has to be invested. Like even oh, more than like, long. Like, yeah, it's like three hours long. There's twenty of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to be able to do that. No, no matter how much <laughs> I like sci-fi, no matter how much impact they have on sci-fi, I'm never going to be able to do it. It's just too hard. <laughs> I give up. This is why we need B movies back. Just like short, sweet to the point, and like I can lock you in the vault and watch you wherever. I don't have to like go on a form and follow every single day. It's just absurd. I don't understand it. If you <laughs> if you like it, that, that's okay, too. Yeah, it's not, I'm not hating on anyone who likes the Marvel movies. It's, just, it's more about, and I, I think most people realize this, it's more about the place they now have in the culture widely. And, you know, I think you know, this is something that uh, is not, it's not only Marvel movies that are like this now. Yeah, I would, I guess I would say it's probably most movies, or at least most big budget things coming out. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a model that I think uh, people want to replicate more widely, like Netflix with some of their shows or whatever. And I'm sure, I'm sure other other industries are are salivating at the thought of it. Yeah, I think it's like the most lazy money you could ever make. Yeah, it seems to me that that's the case. But I, I do, before, before we get way off the rails, I do want to return to to your poems and maybe talk a bit about like um, again how this relates to to the to the B movies on that, I guess, cinematic level. And, you know, I guess like one way to, to ask it, like to ask this is, um, how cinematically, I guess, are you thinking about these poems before you, you write them or, or when you're organizing them or structuring them like for this book, I guess. Um, probably a lot more than I should. Um, yeah, I really love the idea of cheese as in, like, melodrama and things that are just so outrageous and outlandish. And I've always thought of the books in this poem to be an actual zoetrope themselves, where you're sort of looking into a kaleidoscope or this sort of picture reel, and no matter where you stop, you're sort of in this new story. So I thought a lot about just, like, positioning as if it were a stage or a movie and how that sort of fits in with the total narrative. Yeah, and I meant to. And this is something else I was meaning to ask you. Some of these poems are poems we previously talked about. Did you? How much revision went into them before, like you know, when they were published in in magazines and whatnot, in journals and whatnot? How much like revision went into some of these before you brought out the book? Uh, that's interesting. So all most of the space opera poems were written in the spring of 2018, and that's when they were published. And in terms of actual content, it's very little revision. In terms of characters and repetition and sort of fine line craft edits a lot, but also I think most of the change came from sort of de-emphasizing them in terms of the overall scope of the book. So they're in a way where it's sort of like, these are the space opera poems. 
not spread out in the book. This whole block of poems, this whole like block of poems is the space opera. Then you move to another slide. Yeah, I think interestingly, um, if we're thinking about this as a longer sort of zoetrope or space opera type thing, you that the 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 book ends with a love poem. Yeah. Um, yeah, which kind of typifies the genre in some way. I think the B movie sci fi genre that is. Yeah, and I wanted to make those. I won't say them. Actually, could I read that poem? Is that okay to do? Oh, absolutely. Go for it. Go for it. All right. Let me open up. Um, I should probably have been more prepared. I apologize. It's, it's also fine because I edit these. Oh, awesome. Sweet. That's all right. I forgot about that. This is not sort of like... <laughs> cool. So this is a love poem. It is the last poem in the book. Love poem. First, I built the sky and everything under it is chaos. This is my fault. I apologize. Here, this you, me, and this light. You should have built you should have built a house instead. You say. In the light, we learn and relearn new codes for language. Rip apart clouds with our weathered hands, expressing anger, laughter, maybe love. It's hard to tell. The light is a directionless series of hills. I've got a smart parent. Follow me. He'll lead the way. Let's get lost in it. Yeah, thanks for reading that. No problem. Yeah, I um, struggled a lot with the placement of that final poem because I felt like it needed to be a place where the zoetrope sort of comes back full circle. And I think in that poem particularly, it's sort of the beginning poem because it's sort of in this way where, like, nothing is being built, and we are building this, we are building this zoetrope. And originally, the poem right before it was the last poem, because I was really interested in the idea of, after all these poems about death and grief, and sort of how to accept grief, this is a poem where you sort of accept how to live. But I switched them because that was really interesting how the last poem sort of wipes that slate clean. Yeah, and it's also like you're saying a poem. Well, first off, we should say that uh, I should say that um, like Zoetrope is a, the, the poem itself. The poem that you thought about ending it with is a poem where uh, Kevin, the character, is talking to God. Um, but you ended with the with the love poem instead, which I think... <laughs> You know, also could have been, which, was, which we were, you were just saying, could have also began the collection because it ends with, uh, let's get lost in it. Yeah, exactly. Um, where I guess I didn't want it to be, let's get lost in it, this point of ending, but more like this point of, let's dive in and do it all over again. Because this book, I think, generally when I first started writing it, was a way to work through the grief of losing my mother and the grief of state violence but by the end of it became much less about sort of trying to figure out the right way to grieve or the right way to organize or the right way to think or feel but more just accepting I don't know the answer to these things and I'll constantly be learning how to live through that yeah and in the collect in, in, in the poem Zoetrope in the collection collection Zoetrope uh it ends with um, the lines, I'm very new to this, living, you know. And I, yeah, I think that, you know, given the context of that in this collection, it's also about, and it's yeah, definitely about, um, you know, the, the, the denial of living in, in, you know, the white, in a white supremacist society. Yeah, and sort of accepting that I am going to have to fight to learn how to live. But I am done taking time, sort of, I'm done taking time learning that grief is not a thing that can be solved. Or police brutality is not a thing I can solve myself. And the bigger lesson is learning how to live with that, but not only live with that, try to fight against that. And I guess, like, less in the way of trying to fight against 
the feeling of grief or the feeling of loss or the feeling of wanting to die or the feeling of this health anxiety, but trying to fight against the despair that comes with it. Yeah, and in Last Dispatch from My Dying Mouth, like there's a there's a scene in there where I think um, you're you're literally like fighting against death in you know like with a line like um, I I have been dead long before I knew I was dead long before my heart would kill me and I think you know that kind of phrases you know what what we were just talking about as you know the constant like fighting of death rather than living per se exactly yeah um, and I guess it's hard at least for me trying to make those things coexist because I think they can coexist and they have to coexist. But it's so easy to sort of let that fall by the wayside. Yeah, and in that in the poem in the in, in the poem I just quoted from, you know, just before that it begins with um an like a an anecdote almost of, you know, how, how fucking hospital how fucking expensive hospital bills are. And it gets that you know, like what the like the system that you know every that that you're up against here, right? And I think especially in that passage, it's like I know I'm probably not dying, but what if I am dying? But if I'm not dying and I go to the hospital, then I'll be bankrupt. And that's the sort of that in its own in the capitalist society. So it's sort of like, do I choose security or possibly living? Yeah, exactly, and that's you know one just one way of looking at I guess what you're what you're talking about there. Yeah, but I guess you know to I I do want to return maybe to the to the love poem um, because I you know you did end because you are ending with were you talking about um, learn and relearn new codes for language rip apart clouds with our weathered hands expressing anger as you read earlier. And, you know, I guess also, too, with all the, um, I guess, playful, playfulness with language and also just, you know, just breaking all the, I'd say, all the rules you're, you're supposed to follow with respect to English, you know, like, what, like, how do you view, like, that in this context, too? Like, um, yeah, like, reorganizing English like this or, um, you know, learning or relearning new codes, as, as you put it. Yeah, one of the things I tried to do and each poem is give its own po- give each poem its own rule. So a lot of poems I use parentheses or brackets, but I think they're working differently in each poem that I use. And it's sort of by each scene I'm using, I'm sort of recompiling how we use words and I guess how we use words and how we sort of use such small indicators like punctuation and brackets and sort of like these big blocks of text or these small poems on a page or all this use of white space to discuss not only the world in that poem, but sort of how it's shaping how we're looking at the rest of the Zelda. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, would you, like, how would you, like, I, I use the word, like, playfulness there for some of it, but, like, how would you talk about, I guess, some of this, like, rewriting of roles? Like, how, I guess, how do you imagine it? I think a lot of that is sort of who I view the narrator in this book and the age. I always, I guess, when I was writing this book, looked at it in the eyes of a young cousin who didn't understand but was trying to understand these. So I think it's sort of by each poem or each scene, it's building on itself, and I, or the character, is sort of learning what these things mean. But in this world, it doesn't necessarily, if the language in this world doesn't necessarily have to match the language in the real world, because the rules in this world is different. I guess each poem in that sense is like, um, like as we were talking about earlier, and this relates, <laughs> relates back, is, you know, an exercise kind of in that um, science fiction style world building as as they say. Right, and building a world that doesn't last long and a world that sort of exists in that moment but changes in the next one, but each is distinct in its own way. Or each is its own whole world but also parallel to a different world where the rules are different. Yeah, and to me it kind of especially, you know, again with the theme of the zoetrope, like 
it seems to me like also there's the sort of you know the revival like not maybe not revival but the big boom of sci-fi in the 70s like best demonstrated by like movie like star wars where you know one of the criticisms of star wars is oftentimes you, you they, they just go to these worlds jump like the jedi or whatever just go to these worlds jump in and then we never we never return to those worlds we never see them again but you're you know you're i think maybe not diving deeper but you know going to you know creating these worlds in a much different in a much different manner whereas like you know the you could argue like people argue like richard slotkin i think argue that you know that sort of aspect of star wars star wars that going to new worlds every time and just like forgetting about them is you know like a colonial type relation whereas i think you're doing obviously doing something much different than that yeah uh that's interesting that you bring up star wars because one i really hate star wars and two i hate star wars for many of that reasons just because of the lens it's looked through i think in this book i really wanted to do something which yes it disappears quickly but I want you to trust me that they're coming back. I think all of the characters in the play, but one, reappear back in the book in some way. And the one that doesn't is the queen in the second or third poem in the book. I believe it's the third poem in the book. And I did that very pur purposefully because she is a very, a character you would expect a book lens to be looked through. And I wanted to subvert that a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, also, I'd say that the Queen doesn't reappear again because the that poem ends with unemployed drivers carrying a guillotine on their shoulders <laughs> skating to the palace. <laughs> I think we know what happened. <laughs> right, and I think for a lot of the characters, you don't know what happened. Or if you do, it's left very ambiguous. But I feel like that's a moment where it's like, you know this character is stuck. Exactly, and also I would say, too, that, you know, the, the reoccurrence of these characters are you know, they're not exactly the same character per se, and that is meant to show like another angle or another take on what those characters could be, like another possibility for them or potentiality or whatever. Whereas for a queen, I mean, how many how many options are there really? It's your head's getting cut off and that's it. Exactly. And I think that's another way of getting at the perspective that this book takes. Right, and it's also, I think, plays into this idea of not understanding anything, but understanding very early on my politics and knowing that, like, I want the queen dead. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, I feel like because because I'm hosting this podcast, we've gone down the sci-fi rabbit hole as always. But I think one of the things that's equally apparent throughout the poems, other than the influence of science fiction, is, you know, the, the leftist politics. That's uh, never lacking, I'd say. Yeah, um... It's very interesting that, like, I think people call themselves poets because I try not to call myself a poet. Um, poetry is just in the way that I want to tell the stories because it makes the most sense to me. And I really wanted the political lens to be, one, not just focused on personal experience by being, like, a black queer man chasing police brutality and police harassment, but also in the way of, like, it's a universal thing. So, like, for example, the strikeouts, and black very intentional because it's not black boy, it's boy. It could be you or it could be me. But it's me. But it could be you. There's a lot of I say I'd say could be in the in the poems. Or a lot of things that are suggested again by the by I guess the, the parallel nature of some of these poems. Yeah. because um, I don't want to give an answer. As in the goal isn't trying to find the answer. The goal is to satisfy the thirst for the question, if that makes sense. Right. Um, well, let me ask this while I look for something else. But, like, um, is that why poetry for you and not, like, fiction is the, the not, in this, like, the ability to avoid giving the, answering the question? I guess in a way. Um, more, I guess, just not wanting to know. I guess it's the old adage of, like, the interest is in the journey and not the final destination. And I think poetry does this in a way that I don't think other literature does. But I think theater does it in a way that's very parallel to poetry, in which that the point is just the possibilities. Well, I think, like, fiction and movies, the point is, like, this is the destination. Sorry, what you were saying just reminded me of, um, like, a quote that, I'd, that I've had for, that I've, like, thought about for a while. It's about um, questions. It's, like, uh, it goes, the question is a form of non-power, but a subversive kind of non-power. 
one that will be upsetting to power. Power does not like discussions. Power affirms, and it has only friends or enemies, Where whereas the question is in between. And I feel like um, that being in between in this is like what what is what is one of the ways in which you know we end up with all these different, I guess, possibilities. Yeah, who who's that quote by? Uh, that's from oh God, I'm gonna butcher this person, this poet's name. This but it's from um uh the sin of the book by Edmund Jabez. I want to say he was a um a, a Jewish Egyptian writer who ended up living in France most of his life. Oh, cool! I never heard that quote before. I like that quite a bit. Um, yeah, I don't want to serve you what you want to know on a silver platter. I guess the point is is to make you think in that moment that you sort of know in your heart. I guess I hate that word, you know in your heart. But you know what the answer is. But the point is not to try to find that. I guess the point is to get lost in this journey and let the the question lead you. Yeah. I think think you said it pretty (laughs) quickly. No, well, it was one of those, this happens on the podcast a lot, but it's one of those situations where you wrote something (laughs) that could could summarize what you're trying to say in a really quick manner. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I... um, I guess I was just always interested in not only seeing the possibility for myself, but trying to figure out what the questions I had were. And this book is trying to figure out what those questions are. As I was trying to bring up politics before, like that's also, I think, can be a very like you know leftist way of looking at at the world, as opposed to you know the the one as the quote I just read suggests, like as opposed to the there is no alternative relation that, you know, capitalism presents of the world. Yeah. And that's, and as a communist, I think part of it is a communist poet. I think my biggest goal is obviously to subvert that, but also just to like, I really like the, the, the quote, a better world is possible, but the point of the world is to find your own questions. Yeah, for sure, and that's also again what a le- like a leftist kind of communist world's about is the that having that ability that is denied, and as as you talk about in this book, that is constantly denied the that the ability to ask your own questions or to fall, pursue your own to pursue those questions yourself. That's something that this world just denies systematically. Yeah, even doubly more so if you're on the marginalized axis of that. Yes, exa- exactly. Yeah, I um, I guess that's one of my... I don't want to use the word frustration, because that's necessarily true. But one of the things that maybe bothers me a little bit when I read some poetry, and I won't name it, because I don't think that's fair, but there's some poetry that I will read where it's observation point, this thing, that, this thing happened, this flower is red, the world is ending, and that's okay. It just seems so defeatist. And I think for a lot of marginalized writers, the instinct is to go into this trauma in a way that doesn't ask the questions of how do I accept it or how do I get past this, but this is what's happening to me right now. Yeah, and as you wrote in a poem term political, uh, it's hard to write about flowers these days. It's even harder to dig them up. I've got the Punisher logo tattooed on my back. And yeah. yeah, And I guess, you know, like, well, first off, I mean, that, that also connects with what we were, you know, why it's relevant. I think that we, you know, shit talk Disney and Marvel. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to write about trauma and it's very hard to write about societal ills. But I don't get the point of doing that if you're not trying to investigate it. Wait, is Punisher? Oh, sorry. I just is Punisher is not a Disney property because it's no wait. I don't. I just get Marvel and DC confused, and I really resent the fact that I have to know which is which to make these jokes. I feel like I feel like Punisher is Marvel though, right? I don't know if it's necessarily owned by Disney. I think it is. I think it is a Marvel one because I I remember there being there being a discourse about why doesn't Disney slap all the cops with Punisher logos with lawsuits like they do with every other fucking Disney property. God, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> I, re- I also remember that discourse. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. I was at a, um, an action, I want to say it was 2016 now. It was during the RNC that happened in Cleveland. And seeing all these cops with their little, like, Punisher, Blue Lives Matter fucking logos 
I guess really made it apparent to me just like how high entertainment that we don't investigate is can be used for propaganda purposes. There's like a media ecosystem on the right that even like people usually imagine this as like Facebook groups where people, you know, talk about if JFK Jr. is alive, but there are just TV shows out there where, you know, just millions of right-wing people watch them and just they, <laughs> there's no penetration to any of our like uh, imaginations here because it's, you know, it's not for us. Right. And it's also that reaffirming thing. It's also interesting that like it's taken in a way that like we're at some level supposed to sympathize with the right and the left never gets that. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the, the, the dapper Nazi profile. Yeah. And like, yeah, like it, even less than that, it's just these people are this way because. Yeah. They've been made, um, you know, they're, it's the economic anxieties or something. Right, and it's, they were made fun of. Yeah, it's the, also, the, again, the cultural grievances. Right, when it says, like, as a leftist, that's been your entire existence. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't, I mean, like, you know, we're talking about these 90s, you're talking about these early 2000s sci-fi properties, and it's like, you know, what, the 90s in sci-fi were maybe not as radical as the 70s or so. But there were a lot of like leftist sci-fi writers in the '90s, and did none of, to my knowledge, none of that stuff got turned into movies, which really, you know, is just one example of the way this this often works. Right, and it's also interesting in terms of those movies of like the backdrop of the Iraq War happening, and sort of like nationalism as a sky high, and sort of how this <laughs> reaffirms that notion. Or I guess maybe not even reaffirms, just sort of puts this of the baseline of this is how the world is. And this is the right gaze to look at it in. Yeah, and I mean, that's just how, you know, like, culture gets disseminated, I think. And, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, like, the poetry world isn't immune to these same kind of structures. No, is, def- is, this the, is this the part where we talk about the Poetry Foundation? Oh, shit, are we, are we trans... Is this another segue? Is this another professional segue on this podcast? <laughs> You're A-plus on both so far, my friend. Well, thank you. Uh, do you want to? What did? What did you want to talk about exactly here? No, I figured like sort of like the monkey in the room if we're talking about societal structures because the Poetry Foundation is the Star Wars for sure. And I mean, its relationship like with Star Wars to the world of poetry, and I mean the the like poetry around the world, not just in America. I think sometimes that gets overlooked. Is is one of uh, is one of colonialism. Yeah, 100. It's really interesting to me because I have been thinking about these things in terms of my sort of poetry upbringing, in which I was very lucky to go to school for poetry and have a lot of institutional access that a lot of my peers don't have. Um, and that has helped me in terms of networking and in terms of having these opportunities that other people don't have. That's helped me a lot in terms of writing this book. But also... For me, and I think like for most of my friends, like you weren't, you didn't consider yourself a poet until you were in Poetry Magazine. And even for someone like me who has like leftist politics, you just don't question that. Or if you didn't question that. The New Yorker and Poetry Magazine are supposed to, are, you yeah. know, the, the pinnacle for, for poetry, especially in America. Right. Or maybe like that, maybe like the Paris Review. I think it's really interesting now that the dominant opinion, I think, at least online, in terms of poetry, is like, yes, the poetry foundation is racist. Yes, the poetry foundation has dirty money. Yes, the poetry foundation is all of these things. But we're starting to learn our own sort of role in that system, and how, at least with some bigger poets, the complicity in letting that system continue. So I've always talked. I think we were talking about earlier, like a f- sort of like first step situation. And I think I've been really encouraged by some, maybe not some of the more recent discourse, but some of the discourse that's been happening online. Look at even last year, where this sort of like, if you were to say that, you would have just been like ridiculed and made fun of. And that has changed sort of in like the last three or four months. I, I've always had two minds of that when I was a baby poet in which... I was like, it's great that, like, all these marginalized writers are getting money to pay their rent and, like, get this opportunity to be seen by a wide audience. Why is that a bad thing? 
And it's like, you learn to like, yes, that's great for you and your family. And I personally won't attack you for getting your money. But somebody is dying for that money. Yeah. I mean, that, that money, as we all know, that money came from somewhere. Right. And it's a very despicable place. And it's also just like realizing that like they need you more than you need them. Without you, there is no magazine. Nobody cares about poetry magazine itself. I think people care about the people who are published in the magazine. For I think you know we're reaching a point now. It's there are there are several poets now who are you know like have have the cultural ability, have the power within the industry um, to to walk away from it and not really face consequences because of you know their stature in the world already, their stature in the poetry world. And, you know, I think we've seen some of them, you know, decide to maybe go back to the Poetry Foundation for whatever reason. Very, very quickly they did, yeah. Yeah, and maybe maybe not everyone. Uh, let's, I don't know, let's hope maybe not everyone. But, you know, like, I think that says something about the poetry world right now. Right, and it's also just, like, even from, like, a money standpoint or, like, capitalistic standpoint, how much more money you can make. Like, I remember there was that thread, that was the hashtag that was popular a month ago, like, was it Publishing Pay Me or something like that? Yeah, well, that one. That, yeah, that, we don't have to talk about that. But this this idea of, like, you are doing all the work, all this work is yours, but you're seeing 10% of your own labor. Yeah, that has always been something that's mind-blowing to me, is how much publishing in a lot of these places take, and how, relative to how much you're worth. And you're right, like, just even by a, a cruelly capitalist, a coldly capitalist logic, you could um, easily decide to break away from the Poetry Foundation, which I think is increasingly becoming a brand liability, but, um, and make more money. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons, but, you know, I think we're seeing um, the ideology of some, of the poetry world at play here. It's a very disgusting neoliberal ideology, but it also gives me hope with this, like, Marxist poetry has always been there, but increasingly it's getting the front stand. I think like all the most exciting poets writing right now are, are Marxist or leftist poets. And I don't think I could have said that 15 or 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I would say that there have been people doing this for a long time, but, you know, they've not been afforded the same space. And, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons for that, you know, like the events of the past several months are, are one of them, but, and I'm talking, of course, about, you know, what started in Minneapolis and, and COVID. But, you know, there's also, you know, the long-running, you know, the criticism of the Poetry Foundation began basically when they got that money. And there have been people agitating for this kind of change for, for decades. And I, I just think, you know, it's with the state of the world, it's hard to deny a lot of these critiques now. I think, yeah, most of them. I think all these critiques that are coming from, like, all these leftists, and most of them marginalized, being people of color or trans leftists and trans poets, where it's like, you were right. And like, as we saw, like with the Poetry Foundation, just in their new issue, like, you know, they released all these statements. Well, I wouldn't characterize them as all. They, they were very underwhelming. They released a, a couple statements that were underwhelming and then just immediately published a racist poem that's like 30 pages long. And I mean, that's not like an accident that there's a reason this stuff keeps happening. Poetry Magazine has a history and it's, a long racist and fascist one. Like, it's not... And that's, yeah, and that's not going to change by putting a person of color in the boardroom. It's going to change by abolishing. Exactly, and I mean, that's the state of publishing generally. It's not something that can be changed. You know, this isn't... You know, this isn't a reformist... This isn't a reformist-type situation. It is socialism or it is barbarism. And it's always, I think, foolhardy to have hope. So I won't use the word hope. But it's been encouraging to see sort of the popular language or the popular way of change. Yeah, and I mean, I think the the main question isn't you know for a lot of this now isn't you know the regarding like the what to the main question isn't you know the critiques being leveled, but you know the the age old question what is to be done? Which yeah, I think of that also in terms as like a restaurant worker and somebody in the service industry who quit their job last week in fear of like dying and. I hear so many people being like, why don't you just raise the server minimum wage? Are you in California by chance? Right? I am in Los Angeles. Okay. Do you guys have like minimum wage or do you have a minimum wage for servers? I don't know because I, I actually am not from California. I've only been here a few years. Okay. I believe 
they don't have a tip minimum wage, but in Cleveland or in Ohio, it's four dollars an hour plus tips. And so many of my friends have been like, "Yes, the industry sucks, and yes, I am being harassed and exploited, but I'm making so much money, it's fine." But all that money's gone, and that money's not coming back. And the service industry, as it is, is not going to survive. It's fundamentally changed. And the answer, much like in the poetry world, isn't to like try to reform that. It's like you can't reform and a thing that is inherently violent and inherently exploitative. The only way to do that is to abolish. Like we were saying, is you know, it is interesting that some people are deciding to to double down on this model right now when it's when as as we're saying, like it's clearly failing, and there's just more. Not even like you know, one of the things that stri- strikes me about publishing right now is how is how um slowly it moves like in a time sense is you know like if you want to publish any kind of political poems right now like what they're going to tell you you can publish your poems in like i don't know fall 2021 it's like what (laughs) things are happening but and you can otherwise like i what i really i think admire brendan for and admire so many poets online or like it's posted you do as well so you post your poems in the timeline it's just the coolest fucking thing in the world because who needs that? I often think, like, as somebody who runs a literary journal and knows how many views literary journals get, it's not that many. Yeah, just, I mean, just tweet them, usually. It's a solid strategy. <laughs> right, and I mean that in the way where it's like, it's your poem. You don't need these places to do it. Yeah, exactly, and I mean, there's also you know, a whole relation to copyright that is a problem, I'd say. Right, you get this journal gets the first publication rights, and you can't do this or post it on social media because they need to be the first person to post it. When it's like, you don't need these people. And I think what we try to do in Greenland, and we explicitly don't call ourselves a press, is because we're not anyone that is. We are a site that you can print books, and the money we're taking out is solely to print your books. Right. So you're trying. I mean, so you're trying to offer. You know, like, you're not, there's no, like, you're not trying to take, like, printing rights and stuff. You're just offering the ability to print and sell online, is what, I, what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah literally, that's it. Uh, your poems are yours. It goes with um, the Brendan Joyce, uh, fuck, what is it, fuck, uh, fuck copyright, print these poems wherever. Yeah, it's, <laughs> a poem is meant to be seen. Um, our goal in the process is just to help these voices be seen by more eyes. And if you want to make money, and I think we're at a time where everyone's losing their jobs and unemployment's about to run out, so a lot of people need to make money. We're trying to work on a way where we can help print your book and make you money. Yeah, and as um, as Don West said in um, <laughs> in the um, no copyright section of his collected works, um, he said, "Purposely, this book is not copyrighted. Poetry and other created efforts should be." Levers, weapons to be used in the people's struggle for understanding human rights and decency. Art for art's sake is a misnomer. The poet can never be neutral. In a, in a hungry world, the struggle between oppressor and oppressed is unending. There is the inevitable question, which side are you on? And I think that more and more people are being asked the question, which side are you on now? And they're being asked it in a way that is unavoidable for, for them now. And I, and I think... Yeah, oh, go on. I was going to say, yeah, you can't, like, say you don't know anymore, because everyone knows, because it's the world now. And everyone is being asked, which side are you on? And there are, there are increasingly two sides. There is no third way. Yeah, the center has broken. We don't even have to do any Joe Biden material, I mean, to prove, <laughs> to prove that. Uh, that yeah. yeah. We can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We don't need. Is this, no, no, I am not. I'm not doing the Joe Biden. Yeah, we're not. No, this isn't. This isn't the now canceled podcast, Chapo Trap House. This is um, the Marxist Poetry Podcast. We are going to bring you more Don West quotes. Um, yeah, groups of groups or individuals are welcome to reproduce or use any of or all parts of this book. Don West. I mean, yeah, that, that's I think what you're talking about. Yeah, and first of all, I was I love how you just always have a quote on deck. That is like the coolest thing ever. I've been thinking last like, last ten minutes. I'll tell you that. I've been reading a lot lately, so that's just what's what happens when I, when I do that. Um, I don't know if that that kind of 
thing is sustainable for this podcast, but that's just where the podcast is currently at. Um, I don't. I actually don't know if I even like doing that, but what, I mean, it's just what's happening. I mean, I mean, I'm going to hold you to the standards. So I expect to see them in every episode. Well, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just have to never sleep. Oh, I will cancel you. I mean, I'm craving cancellation at this point, but you know, <laughs> the sweet, sweet release of cancellation. Release of expectations. Yeah. Um, but I guess you know. Is there anything else you you want to say about the? I mean, maybe not even the Poetry Foundation, but the situation, like the the situation of, um, I guess, creative labor right now, or um, you know, culture workers, as the old term goes. Yeah. Um, I guess I would just want to say, know your worth, and know that we are in a time of great social change, and following that also comes with great time of arts change. And right now, the big giant is crumbling, and we have the opportunity to change it in our image, especially into something that is more equitable. And I think I, for one, am all in trying to make do as much for that movement as I can. I think, yeah, that's, that's really good advice is to understand the moment we're in. And I think it, it seems to me that, that more and more poets do, do understand that. And I think that, as, you, as we were talking about earlier, that is a really hopeful thing. And, you know, I had Mark Nowak on and he's someone like I've been alluding to one of those people who've been doing this for you know almost 25 years. And he seemed optimistic about the current situation as well. I think there are a lot of, a lot of reasons to be optimistic. I saw a tweet today that was something like, you know, people should be like, I don't know, 90% terrified, but also 10% hopeful given the current situation. And that seems about right. Already have the worst health anxiety in the world. Um, as somebody who's very high risk for COVID-19. It's really interesting to me, just going in between periods of, like, anxious that I'm going to die, or anxious that my friends are going to die, or anxious that, like, I am going to be unemployed and broke, and anxious that I will be arrested, or all these other things. On the other hand, there's this hope that there's so many poets and so many people who have been doing this and saying this for a long time, but people who have just started writing poetry in this one and not need to be converted to it in terms of just sheer numbers is it's hard not to be optimistic about that. Yeah, I mean, the Zoomers are literally out here bringing out guillotines, so... Through TikTok and poems on the timeline. Yeah, I mean, if only we could mash those two memes together. There's a way. We can do it. <laughs> smart. Yeah, Marx's poetry is pivoting to TikTok. The, the, Chinese, the Chinese-funded TikTok. I often said, if I was born, like... Four years earlier, because I'm like 26, just to get like in that sweet older Zoomer demographic, I would be such a more effective organizer. Yeah, it does seem like they really have it together in a way that I guess millennials don't. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I think it's always like really entertaining just to see Elon Omar's daughter be more radical than she is. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on right now. You know, I see a lot of Zoomers out there. They're at the protests, and they're really, uh, they're really going for it. If that's the mark we left in the movement, that like people coming after us are doing these things and that's I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm right as as um one of my, one of the DMs I'm in likes to say, uh, you know, we're ready for the dictatorship of the teen. I have been ready since two thousand and ten. <laughs> yeah. Um is there anything else uh, you want to talk about? No, I think that's it. Thank you. Uh 